Hello, good people. This is Sister Julia Walsh, and you're listening to Messy Jesus Business. Welcome to The Mess. I'm here with Ralph McLeod, the Director of the Catholic Campaign for Human Development, or CCHD, the Domestic Anti-Poverty Program of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. CCHD works to break the cycle of poverty by helping low-income people participate in decisions that affect their lives, families, and communities, and by educating people on poverty and justice. Ralph has served as the National Director for 15 years. Prior to working at the USCCB, Ralph worked as Division Director of Pastoral and Community Services in the Diocese of Fort Worth, Texas. While in this position, Ralph served four terms on the Fort Worth City Council from 1997 to 2005 and three term as Mayor Pro Tempore. Ralph is a member of St. Teresa of Avila Parish in Washington, D.C., where he serves on the Finance Council and is a lector. Ralph McLeod, welcome to Messy Jesus Business. It's a pleasure to be with you. Great to see you again. Yeah, good to see you. Ralph, you're the director of the Catholic Campaign for Human Development at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops in Washington, D.C. Really using your gifts of administration, your passions for justice, your passions for alleviating poverty here in the United States, uh, and for civil rights, to advocate for the common good, to promote the gospel, to help the Catholic Church really live out its mission of serving the poor and liberating them from poverty. How did you get involved in all this good work? And how did you discover that this was your calling? Well, thank you. That's a, a very loaded question. But I'd have to say it's probably in, in my DNA. I guess my parents and grandparents were always involved in trying to make their local communities better by encouraging the community to come together and work as a community towards solutions. They'll help lift themselves up out of poverty, they'll lift themselves up out of uncomfortable situations. I think it was uh, uh, just kind of natural, I think. But as I found out later in life that the Catholic Church was also concerned about how folks develop in a human way, that there are certain needs that folks have that are necessary for them to live out to the dignity that God wants all of us to live out to. And so as I got deep into understanding the Catholic Church, it seemed natural for me to step into to doing church work. I started out working for the Diocese of Fort Worth in the uh, Pastoral Community Services Department where I directed their justice and peace work in African-American ministries. And it was consistent with what my parents and grandparents had actually kind of instilled in me and encouraged me to do. And it kind of gave me a, a deeper fuel or a deeper passion for it once I realized that my church also mm. encourages this the same kind of advocacy, the same kind of working on behalf of our brothers and sisters who struggle. Yeah, yeah. So did you grow up going to Catholic church and you had a prayer life as a kid and you felt kind of in love with Jesus from an early age or what? Oh, no, no, no. no. <laughs> it didn't happen quite like that. It's like they say, the Lord works in mysterious ways. I actually went to Catholic schools before I was Catholic. Mm. And all of my uh, six brothers and sisters went to Catholic schools because my parents in the South saw the Catholic schools as having superior education. Mm. And they want to make sure that their kids had the, the best education uh, at the time. So they scrimped and saved us to the Catholic schools. We were all Methodists, uh, raised Methodists and, and, and participated in Methodist church. But as we got older and, and more formed in the Catholic schools and, and the very dedicated sisters and priests who were there, 
we eventually uh, converted to Catholicism before we, we graduated from the eighth grade. So uh, Your whole family? Yes, we all did. Yes, Everybody except my parents, even though my parents were very uh, strict about us attending Mass and doing all the things associated with the Catholic Church, they never really converted themselves. But all, all six of us did. Was it one big family? You all were confirmed on, on the same Easter Sunday or something? <laughs> <laughs> We're kind of stiff stiff because we were all different ages, but we all, there were a couple of us who had our first communion together, and then there were a couple who had our confirmations together. So, yeah, but we all ended up converting to the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah. And, and then I obviously ended up working for the Catholic Church many years later. And I know part of your path, part of your life journey is that you were involved in politics in Fort Worth, Texas for a while, right? You right, were really yeah, uh-huh. exerting your passions for the common good in that sphere. Which is, I think, the, the what people naturally do. I mean, that's kind of like what our secular society teaches us to do. If you want to work for good, get involved in politics. But somehow you switched over and decided the way to do that was to promote the gospel and to work for the church. <laughs> How did that happen? Well, you know, I was under the, uh, the impression, I guess, at the time, that didn't necessarily have to be a distinction between the two, promotion of the gospel and that for the common good and politics. I think it could work. I had no intention of ever running for public office, but some folks in a very low-income community encouraged me to run. They knew what I did. They knew that I worked for the bishop of Fort Worth, and they said, you know, that you have a bit of a reputation for speaking out on certain issues, for being concerned about those who were who poor and struggle. So, and so my intention of running was only like to lift up the issues. Mm-hmm. That was my only intention. So that they could at least get talked about in, in public. I didn't think that I would win. It was kind of like the dog who chases a car. What do you do when you catch it? And so I ended up winning and I, and I uh, served for four terms at the same time when I was working for the Diocese of Fort Worth. Okay. I was doing those, those simultaneous. And what did you learn during that time about how politics and the church, politics and religion can actually work together for good? I do think that I was kind of instrumental in using some of that language in public spaces, you know, speaking about how we give a preferential option to the poor in in certain situations. The language that we become comfortable with in Catholic social teaching, using that in public spaces. And folks kind of found that endearing, Mm. whether they're Catholic or not, or whether they understood Catholic social teaching or not. They would say, yes, we should act on behalf of the company. Yes, we should give preferential option for the poor. Yes, we should be concerned about our shared uh, earth and, and the care for creation. So it became a, a way of life for me. It made things easier for me. Whenever I had a very, very tough decision to act on, I could ask myself, well, what? Not so much what would Jesus do, but what would a decision on this particular case look like if we were concerned about the preferential option for the poor? And it made the decision often very easy. Let's break open some of those terms. Common good, preferential option for the poor, Catholic social teaching. You're talking my language, my friend, but I <laughs> I suspect some of our listeners think that we're talking like Latin here. So <laughs> how about you, first of all, you define what Catholic social teaching is. <laughs> sure, sure. It's a, it's a body of teaching that the guides the church. The official kickoff was in 1891 with, with Rerum Neverum, a document that was written by Pope Leo XIII on the condition of labor. That spoke about the importance of treating laborers fairly and justly with wages and benefits and, and all of those kinds of things and not abusing child labor. And then it kind of evolved out of that in looking at ways that the church, based on scripture, and I say, well, I, well, that was the official kickoff. I would say that it begins all the way back to Deuteronomy when, you know, God had a special affinity for the person who was a stranger, for the person who was a, a widow or the person who was an orphan, special treatment. So I think that's a way of, of us looking at our faith in a way that we're concerned about folk 
They were concerned about folk outside of ourselves. And Pope Francis is kind of reminding us, kind of steering us back into the whole Catholic social teaching that, that it's more than just the relationship with my, ourselves and God. It's relationship with one another. It's also a relationship with God's creation, which includes the environment, which includes our brothers and sisters, which includes persons in other portions of the world. You said preferential option for the poor. Let's talk about what that means. That means we give preference and deference to those people who struggle. You know, we talk a lot about being fair, doing the fair thing. And fair isn't necessarily just. There are those in our mm. community and in our world because of because of oppression, because of mistreatment, because of historical values. They require and they need more to live up to their human dignity. The whole notion of being fair means we treat everybody the same, which it doesn't necessarily achieve that. Being just means that those who need more, we see what those needs are and adjust to help those persons doing it. Giving preference and deference to those people who find themselves struggling. Right. You know, I, I find it so interesting when you talk about the difference between fairness and justice, Ralph, because like fairness was so emphasized in school for me, you know, and I, share your toys. Let's all have the same amount of treats here, <laughs> you know, but justice is a bit more abstract. It's more difficult to teach. I don't think I started to really learn about it until I went to Bible school and then Bible camp. I was in spaces with Lutherans, actually, not with Catholics. And I remember one of the times that it was like the most shaking up for me was we did this exercise at Bible camp where, okay, all of us kids were in line to get our food and the first kid wasn't yet served. And then they said, okay, now the whole line is going to switch order. And the kid that is at the end of the line, you guys get to come up to the front and we're going to flip this whole line around. And of course, all the kids that had rushed to the front of the line were appalled. Why are they going to the end? This is not fair. And then the, the camp counselor said, well, you know, Jesus says the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And that's what justice is. Sure. And it's a recognition that everybody's not starting at the same spot. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And there are times, you know, that, that I needed more than my brothers and sisters. Being raised in a big family, there are times that I needed my parents' attention more than they needed. If I was ill, if I was mm. depressed, if I was having difficulty, treating all, all seven of us the same way, it would have been the fair thing to do. But not realizing that, that at that time, I needed more. I needed more attention. I needed more care. I needed, and they loved all their children the same. But being just means that there are some that needs more assistance than others. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for a God that treats me like that, uh, the, the same way. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad that we have a God of justice and not a God of fairness. Yeah, me too. And so as, as Catholics, if we're having a preferential option for the poor, then we are thinking about the poor and thinking about what do they need before we think about maybe ourselves or protecting big business or protecting corporations or the comforts of those who already have power and privilege. I got to just say too, Ralph, like I'm visually impaired, you know, I struggled to see. And if my parents would have said, oh, the other kids don't need glasses. <laughs> like, we're not going to spend money on getting you glasses. <laughs> that would have been very unjust. So then how does that mindset then influenced your political mindset in the way you were advocating for policy and advocating for justice in Texas, where you were in, in city government? And somehow then you ended up getting involved in the Catholic campaign for human development. Tell us about what that is and how this fits with the church's mission of focusing on the poor. Sure. I think one of the things that's consistent with, with being successful in the political life and also being successful in the place where I am now is a deliberate effort, an intentional effort to make sure that we listen to the people who are poor, to realize and understand that we don't have all the answers. And in many cases, they can bring us a richness that we don't have. 
being committed and dedicated to both encounter and to walk with. And that takes effort to be intentional and to be delivered because they have a way of bringing you to an appreciation of their lived experiences in a way that absent that encounter, absent that contact, you just won't have. And I think with CCHD, that the founders, they realized that they did not have the answer. The wisdom of the bishop some over 50 years ago was that there's something missing here. We're doing a real good job in our, our soup kitchens, in our homeless shelters, in our hospitals, in our schools. But something is still missing. Folks still can't really make deliberate decisions about what affects their lives, themselves, and their families. And we have to figure out ways to listen to them, which means that we have to go across the railroad tracks. Mm-hmm. And again, not use fear as an excuse, not use superior intelligence as an excuse, but realize that they have something that we need in terms of that sharing. And if we're going to make decisions in a preferential option for those persons, if we're making decisions, we have to know what those things are that they need. Many years ago, and, and, and before I came to CCHD, I remember after Hurricane Mitch in Honduras, where folks were coming down and they were building homes for the folks in Honduras after the, the, the homes had been destroyed and they had nothing. And we came back later on and found that they had torn the houses down because they just weren't functional for their way of life. Mm. The people here in the United States, very well-meaning folks, imposed their values on the way. This is the way a house is supposed to look for you that's going to be functioning. And it wasn't. It didn't allow for things like water, for things like latrines, things like where the kitchen was supposed to be. And so they tore it down and used the materials to build something else that might be more suitable for them. Not that they weren't grateful, not that they weren't appreciative, but we didn't take the time to listen to them prior to uh, the the building of of these houses. And I think that the CCHD and other organizations do a very um, distinct effort, kind of a rare and unique effort, if you will, of building a a conduit or ways we might be able to listen, to use a 2023 word in a synovial way. You know, it makes me think of how Jesus, the way he listened was by being with the people right? Being right there alongside them in their struggles. Mm -hmm. He walked along, understood the messiness of their day-to-day life. It wasn't like he would show up in these villages and like just hand out a bunch of new sandals and leave. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he came in, he developed relationships and (laughs) sat with them at the table, cried with them, prayed with them, all the things. So really working in alleviating poverty is entering into relationship with people, building trust, and that takes time and presence. Sister Julia, that's why I like the name of this podcast, The Messy Jesus Business, because in a very real way, that's kind of where CCHD lives. I mean, we live in Messy Jesus's business and try to to emulate the actions of Jesus when we we go into communities, not with our own agendas, but we go to listen. And we go with the intention of supporting, but to listen, to see what the needs are, to assist in those ways. And working with low-income communities, as you well know, is very seldom and very rarely neat. Some of our critics uh, are oftentimes criticizing us because we don't do things in a cookie-cutter way. We don't do things the way that other folks understand. But, you know, working with low-income communities, working with immigrants, working with folks who have been denied of educations and denied of resources for generations, Mm -hmm. it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be a cookie-cutter response. One of the things that CCHD does and the founder's wisdom is that We don't support any organizations unless the voice of that organization, the board and the folks who are in that organization, the majority of them are low-income folks themselves. Mm. The board has to be low-income. 
And because of that, because of that, we can get a clearer picture of what the, the needs of the organization, needs of the neighborhood are, as opposed to what someone from outside or someone who has a different value system who would come in and, and change that. So it's, it's an important, it's essential for who we are, I believe, as Catholics and as Christians, that we go into communities and do as you just mentioned, sister, that we do as Jesus did. We sit, we listen, we enact, we engage, we find out what the needs are, and then, and then respond. Being a teacher in some Catholic schools along the way, the way that service and serving others was taught, it was actually most of the time promoting philanthropy and it was promoting charity. You know, each grade level would like collect however many pennies they could and then they would donate that to that some sort of organization that served the poor. There's such a gap in relationship when that's what's happening versus direct service where you're like right there in the struggle with someone and in those places of encuentro encounter we're transformed right we're changed and we come to like some new realizations about ourselves and our privilege and power and like how we're meant to be in relationship and what justice really is and i mean it, that approach to learning about it and learning the difference between philanthropy or and charity versus injustice in, in itself is totally messy work. <laughs> it's complicated. And, and, and it, you can't even create a good, tidy curriculum <laughs> or a lesson plan and set up a proper program to really transform hearts. <laughs> well, you know, I, and I would say, you know, thank God for those folk. Yeah. I would say thank God for those folk who deal with the direct service and the day-to-day needs of folks. Thank God that they yeah. respond in a way that to people who are homeless or hungry and We'd be lost without right. it. But I think, you know, asking a deeper question in my mind, a deep question, why are there hungry people? Why are there homeless people? And we see it daily here in the District of Columbia, and I would say any major city in the country, that there are folks who are walking the streets, who are talking to themselves, who are begging for their day-to-day survival. I think, you know, asking a deeper question, what else is there? I mean, to look at a homeless person and say he's just homeless and shiftless and lazy, I mean, there's more to it. I mean, that person has a family. That person probably has some sort of mental illness or addiction. I mean, looking at it and drilling deeper to see how you might get that person to live closer to the dignity that God wants all of us to live up to Yeah. and realize that there's, there's more to it. It's true that they need a sandwich right now. They need that dollar that we give them right now. And that's very important. But they also need beyond that. They're also part of a larger system that we belong to. They're also part of our family, a part of our human family, that if they're struggling, we're struggling. We're not whole as long as they're not whole. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. And and it requires something out of us. Like we can't say, oh, the church, let's take them to the church. Let's drop them off here. Or let's say the church is failing them or the state's failing them or there should be more shelters. Or Actually, we have to give of ourselves and our time and we have to let go of our own agenda and our ideas. I have to acknowledge and hang out and maybe sit with them on the curb and listen. Listen, what do you need? What happened? What can I do? Yeah. yeah and I would say, too, in Catholic social teaching and then I think our church can take a leadership role in that, you know, in, in something like taking a homeless person on the street, at least have a deeper sensitivity in the way that we look at them. We may or may not give them, you know, our loose change or a dollar. But, you know, to look at it in a way that it's not something that I can just ignore, I can just pass by or drive by or walk by. I'm not saying, put, you know, that anyone should put their lives in danger or anything, but I should pray. I should pray for that person, pray for some sort of solution to homelessness, 
pray for some of the, the root causes of homelessness or poverty, that I should look at that person and, and it moves me to, to some sort of action beyond just driving by and changing the channel on my radio station or, or doing whatever I can to just ignore it. That that should trigger some sort of activity in ourselves. If we are who we say we are as Christian and as Catholic, we just can't say that we're going to throw those lives away. And I think the whole idea of getting closer to seeing that kind of helps us become more, more sensitive to it. Mm. Using this example that we use and say, I'm going to go another route because I don't want to pass by people who are homeless or hungry. I don't want to know about it. I don't want to see it. I mean, that's denial of who we are as Christians, of all those of Jesus who went to the hamlets and to the communities and tried to find persons who, who were struggling and, and deal with whatever issues that they had. Ask mm. community. Ask community. Um, I think, you know, it has to spur us to some sort of, of different behavior other than just ignoring it. Yeah. It doesn't always have to be that you're going to go out and embrace them and put them in your car and take them to you know, right. a restaurant. But something, it has to be something other than, than ignoring it. You know, what you're talking about, Ralph, which I just want to illuminate here, is how compassion requires us to be uncomfortable. Part of being compassionate, part of being loving is entering into the discomfort and allowing ourselves to go to a space of inconvenience, right? So if we're really loving like Christ, we're going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be inconvenient. I mean, the cross totally shows us this. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, in my parish, St. Teresa of Avila here in, in D.C., instead of our at the exit door, the, instead of having an exit sign over, it has a service entrance. It's like, mm. you know, we come to be energized and enhanced and encouraged and inspired. But we're going out into a world of service. We're going out in the world to be concerned about our brothers and sisters. And as soon as we go out into the service entrance, the people that we see on the streets and the roads, we have to look at them differently because of what we just experienced, because of the Eucharist, because of, of hearing the word of God. We can't approach it the same way we've always approached it. We as Christians are called to really stick out but through our acts of advocacy for justice, for the way we are with people who are in poverty, how we're accompanying those who are serving. Right, right, right. So you mentioned critics a while ago, and I happen to know, because you, I've heard you talk about this before, that over 50 years ago, when Catholic Campaign for Human Development got started, critics started showing up. <laughs> and, and it's like, it's part of the history. They've been around just about all People have years. called you nasty names and accused you of heresy and accused you <laughs> like i mean you're constantly under attack for advocating for the poor and i wonder how do you deal with that <laughs> like honestly you know i think part of it is uh folks kind of prefer a neat very neat christianity a very neat catholicism where there are certain populations that are worthy of working with and that are worthy of listening to, that are worthy of encountering and working with. And then there's, there's, there's others. And, and I think you know that for the Catholic Campaign for Human Development, since its founding, since its inception, was to go on the other side of the railroad tracks and, and listen to those folks who we're not engaged with every Sunday morning, that to organize and encourage them to organize themselves and to come together. And folks are attracted to that. There's a fear among a lot of folks if you say that we're going to go organize, we're going to bring a whole bunch of low-income people together and let them tell us what it is that they need. There's a, a certain fear that exists in, in some communities that says, well, that's not right. They don't, they don't know what they need, number mm. one. And number two, you know, they're going to ask for things that are unreasonable. Number three, you know, just the nature of poverty and low-income people in the United States, oftentimes they're going to be people who are uh, people of color. Mm. 
And so you throw all of that, you throw the, the racism, the misunderstanding, the reality of folks who are fearful of people, particularly low-income people coming together, you throw all that together and it, it, it can terrify folks. And there are those who in their, their defense, they're attracted to that very one way approaching and dealing with poverty, that they say that charity is the only way. Yeah. That's the best way to do with it and the only way. They don't like and they're not attracted to low-income people or the church even confronting systems, institutions that keep people in poverty. They just rather that, for lack of a better phrase, that feel-good method of let me just deal with it in a charitable way. Again, as I mentioned, it's very important, but it's not the only way. So the church's mission is to do both. And because somehow not everyone gets that, (laughs) or they don't like the messiness of it, then they attack you. Or the mission of CCHD. They're trying to eradicate this mission from what the church is doing in the United States. And you understand where it's coming from. Yet, I mean, (laughs) maybe you don't want to talk about this. Maybe it's too vulnerable. (laughs) That's fine, my friend. I know you have some wisdom about, like, how do you deal with the day-to-day attacks and the harm? How do you stay (laughs) faithful and keep loving your enemies? <laughs> oh, let me be clear. I do love I, I love my enemies because of the Christ that I follow. Number one, who who told us to love our enemies, who loves his enemies. I think you know that some of the critics and some of the attacks when they come, I'm oftentimes consoled by some of the folks who have been assisted mm. and aided over the last fifty some years by CCHD, whose lives have been changed, who have families who have contributed to the societies and to the communities, who have participated in ways in their parish and their community that. That would not have happened had there not been CCHD's uh, assistance, had it not been their their intervention. I have folks who are attackers, oftentimes don't know the the, the groups and the organizations and the diocese and the people that we serve, other than what they'll read on the um, internet post or social media. And I think, you know, for us, we have tremendous safeguards with uh, both the local diocesan offices and their dedicated staff who can see what the groups are doing on a day-to-day basis, who see the good that happens. So I get enriched, I get encouraged, I get inspired when I can sit down in a basement of a of an immigrant mother whose husband and, and, and children have been have been deported and she doesn't know what you know tomorrow's gonna bring, who can still you know muster a smile and say thank you to the Catholic Church in, in, in the United States, CCHD, for helping me, not just in faith, but you're being concerned about me, someone you don't know, someone who by definition is a stranger. And whose faith is enhanced and who's inspired herself to help others. You know, I've seen that happen, you know, from generation to generation to generation. The criticisms they hurt, we take them very, very, very seriously and we look into them, each one of them. But the uh, reality of us dealing with some of the issues that are keeping people in poverty, that comes mm-hmm. first. And I think oftentimes some of the critics don't understand that in our founding. You know, we work with people of all denominations. In fact, uh, you know, almost by definition, some of our funded groups will reach out to people of other denominations, realizing that coming together, they can build a degree of power that they might be able to affect some sort of change that they could have done individually. So the uh, collaboration is important. The community is important. The coalitions are important to make the kind of change that's going to help pull people out of poverty. Right, um, right. You know, so, criticism right. are bothersome and worrisome, but you know the most important thing is this: lives are affected when we are distracted from what we do and do well on a day-to-day basis. It sounds like you're constantly having to like shed this layer of distraction and keep your focus on the poor, keep your focus on Jesus and what He modeled for you. As you describe all this, it's occurring to me that you must really see Jesus in the poor. 
you must really encounter Jesus and the poor. And I think that's the big distinction between ourselves and some of our critics and others is that we are there with folk. We are, are face-to-face interacting with groups of people in low-income communities. We are there talking to folks who have first-hand knowledge of some of the treatment, who have first-hand knowledge of some of the difficulties, who have first-hand knowledge of some of the struggles that they're going through. And that transcends some of the other, uh, for lack of a better phrase, but consistent with the pocket, some of the messiness that, that uh, oftentimes comes into play. And I think that that whole essence and the whole uh, importance of encounter, I think, is the way that we can we can become one with low-income communities. Uh, that absent those encounters, we would sit back in judgment as well. But once we're there and we can see it and we can interact with folks, it's life-changing, it's transformative, it's evangelizing, it's faith-building for both yourself and the person who you're interacting with. Because you're closer, you're closer to community, real community. When I read the Gospels, Ralph, I th- I'm pretty sure you and I read the same Gospels. <laughs> We have the same Bibles. <laughs> I mean, anyway, when I read it, I come to know a Jesus who was dealing with critics who misunderstood and were calling him names. And he remained faithful to the mission of love, to the mission of confronting a system of oppression. And I'm wondering what you have to share about how you understand Jesus as a man who was advocating for the poor and willing to confront systems of oppression himself. Well, sure. The famous one, I I think, is when he flipped over the tables in the temple when folks were... (laughs) Talk about a mess. There's countless number of ways where Jesus went against the tradition of the people of the time. The story of the Good Samaritan, I mean, the the reality of uh, Samaritan being the least likely person who's supposed to stop along the road and help this person when the priest goes by, the Levite goes by, the Samaritan is counter, counter, counter cultural. I mean, he was responding to, to who is my neighbor, to the question, who is my neighbor? And then responding at the end of it, like, okay, then which one was the neighbor? It wasn't the person who was the priest. It wasn't the person who was the Levite. No, rather it was the person who was the Samaritan, you know, the person who was the the, the, the hated community, or certainly the opposite of the community of the cultural person. So he kind of twists the whole story around. And there's time after time after time Jesus does that to help us understand that the whole gospel is not easy. The whole thing of, of loving your enemies. For heaven's sakes, I got family members I can't stand sometimes. <laughs> but, but loving your enemies, not just loving your family and friends. Jesus, are you serious? Yeah, yeah. Time after time, he takes us in a countercultural role, whether we like it or not. And it's not a convenient gospel. It's not a comfortable gospel. And I say, in, in most times, I think, like, thank God for that. And I'm just thinking about the narratives where the scribes or the Pharisees are kind of muttering off to the side and like thinking, like, how can we catch him? How can we prove that he's not a good Jew? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and he is so clever <laughs> and nonviolent every, every time. And he doesn't stop loving them and calling them to growth, calling them to conversion. And so if we're called to to imitate him, then maybe that's what we ought to be doing for one another in this church where we just love to sometimes do a lot more infighting than collaborating, unfortunately. I personally think that it's one of the ways that the evil one loves to or gets to win is in, when we give into that, that power of division. Jesus teaches us that differences are in deficits. 
because a person is in poverty, because of struggling uh, economically, uh, educationally, or spiritually, the fact that they're struggling that way does not make them any less human than anybody else is. That we have a shared humanity and the reality of us being responsible for one another. The whole early Old Testament, you know, before Jesus, am I my brother's keeper? I mean, that's one that resounds with, yes, we are. We are brothers and sisters keeper. We are. And back to your comment earlier about folks who want maybe a, a really tidy church or tidy gospel, they're basing who's, who, who gets service on worthiness. <laughs> the, like there, it, it goes into this mindset of who's in, who's out, but certainly the gospels. And like you say, the, the Hebrew Bible is is showing us again and again that actually nobody is worthy, but God goes to those who are most in need, and that's who God offers compassion to. Well, I would agree. I would say that that nobody's worthy and everybody's worthy. Mm. (laughs) Nobody, yet everybody. Right. The paradox. (laughs) A paradox that all the Gospels speak to. Nobody, yet everybody. Come on in, all you unworthy yeah. ones. <laughs> you yeah. are worthy to be here, and you are welcome. We're absolutely worthy, but we're not worthy at all. Right, right. So I'd like to go back to one other term we haven't defined. It's another principle of Catholic social teaching, which is common good. What is the common good, Ralph? The common good is where a, a community, However you want to define it, is able to share in the richness, the goodness of God together. Mm. The common good where everyone can share in the benefits of the graces and the blessings of God together. That they may be able to live up to a dignity that God wants all of us to live up to. And I keep saying that because I think it's important that God does want all of us to live up to that. The common good suggests that we live in a community where no one has to struggle for health care, for food, for clothing, for things like even employment. They don't have to struggle for ways to support their family, for the kinds of things that to all of the benefits of the world that allow people's identity to be enhanced, that nobody should have to struggle for yeah. that. Like the people of Corinth in the Bible, it's like, you know, you look at them, you say, see how they love one another. They're taking care the community is taking care of the community. So we're not leaving anyone out. We're not ignoring their needs. We're paying attention to those who are the most in need and responding to those. Right. And it costs something from those of us that have all our needs fine, taken care of. We have all the privileges in the world. There's, you know, discussions on, on, on left and right about the common good. The way I like to look at it, maybe this comes from being an old policymaker, is something like paying taxes. We pay yeah. local community taxes so we can have a fire department, a police department, parks, streets, those kinds of things. If each one of us individually said, well, you know, I'm not worried about the community. I want to have my own fire department, my own individual fire department, (laughs) or my own police department. I wouldn't be able to afford it. But the fact that we can actually pool our resources together and we can all enjoy it. That's one way of looking at to realize, you know, I'm responsible for the well-being of my brothers and sisters and they're responsible for mine. And so it's economic, actually. It's economic, it's cultural, it's spiritual. It's Economic is one of the biggest ones without question. But things like an educational systems, where all of the people in my community can be educated, all the kids can be educated in a way that that's going to build community yeah. and leave no one behind. And, and, you know, being a former teacher, you, you understand that, that. 
<laughs> and it's it's easier to give the great student attentive, turning in their homework, sitting in front of the class, to give them all the attention. <laughs> right. Because it's it feels so good. Oh, they're following right along with this lesson. But the students that are acting out or, you know, causing trouble because they don't get it and they're uncomfortable to admit that, those are the ones who need more attention, right? And I'm just thinking, too, about, like, how... In all of this struggle, all the messiness of advocating for systemic change and social justice in politics and as a church community, we really have to pay attention to what we're making into idols, don't we? If we're thinking that the glory is preserving something that we're really comfortable with, whether it's an economic principle or a way of praying, our own security. If those are the things that we hold in higher esteem than what the discomfort that the gospel calls us to, then we're probably have our focus in the wrong place. (laughs) I would agree. I would agree. You know, if we prioritize, you know, our, our way of life, our comfort, our income, our ideology, all of these above the call that says love one another, all of these above worshiping and, and following a, a Jesus, that can be problematic. That can throw you into a society that becomes as polarized as what we find ourselves right now. Yeah, Placing those, those, those idols, if you will, above the whole notion of loving God and loving one another, the only two commandments that we got that, that would help us get to heaven, there is, that would throw us into a problem. So... Is that what discipleship is for you? Or what more do you have to say about what it means to follow Jesus? I think it means being deliberate about taking time uh, to spend with Jesus, Jesus' words, Jesus' actions, Jesus' motives for, for doing what he does, and then allowing that to affect your days, your activities, your decisions, and continuing to follow him, to ask yourself, not just what would Jesus do, but who would Jesus listen to? Mm. Who would Jesus interact with? Who would Jesus make a special effort to have a conversation with? Who would Jesus dine with? Who would Jesus shop with? Mm. Who would Jesus vote for? You know, all of these kinds of things of following this Jesus who frankly challenges us intentionally to, to go beyond who we are, to go beyond what our ideas are, to go beyond what our notions of what's right and what's wrong are. I think that's discipleship. And somehow, I don't know if this is your experience too, but as we do that, we become even more true to who we are and who God made us to be. And we're embracing the dignity that God gave us at our conception. So like, I mean, that that's a marvel in it for me. <laughs> it like, to, to me too. And, and you know, I yeah. find too. And, and you know, I'm probably four times older than you. But, <laughs> <We're> <laughs> not. but, but I find it's a whole lot more natural that way. It's a whole lot more comfortable when I get that way, I, there's tension and struggle to get to it, but it just seems like there's a natural peace associated with following this Jesus. It may seem like a struggle, it may seem dif- difficult, but it just seems very, very appropriate and natural to do it the Jesus way. The people who, who had to give up fishing and put down their nets and go follow him, they didn't really want to do it. <laughs> Probably like, not. Livelihood. I mean, this is how, how are we going to eat? How are we going to you know, I think they would say that they don't have any regrets today. That's for sure. Yeah, right. Right. And they died for it, too. Yeah. yeah. So what else do you have to say as we conclude here about the messiness of living the gospel? And this is kind of a paradox, too, but there's a peace in the messiness. I mean, there's a reality that if you acknowledge that the messiness is going to exist, that, you know, the Jesus business is going to be messy. Mm-hmm. And to the degree it's not, 
I would say if it's easy and it's comfortable, then it's not Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's not. I mean, if you have no struggles, no difficulties, or you're not interacting with people who are struggling and poor and people who are having difficulty in the day, if you're not interacting with them like Jesus, I would say that's, and it's a messy life. And that's, that's probably not of, of Jesus. Mm. That Jesus wants us to be uh, happy and to be whole. Not just us individually, but he wants my brother here who's struggling on the street, my sister here who's having uh, difficulty finding things to eat and, and, and getting a good job. He wants all of us to be whole. He came for all of us, that all may be one. Amen. Oh, Ralph, thank you so much for coming on Messy Jesus Business. How can the oh, listeners support the mission you. of Catholic Campaign for Human Development? Oh, sure, sure, sure. Like I said, we've been around 50 years. We have a collection every year. We've supported some 20,000 community organizations in that 50 years, $400 million in grants. And because of the generosity of wonderful people around the country, we've done some great work in economic development initiatives. That includes community land trusts. That includes worker-owned co-ops. But there's still a tremendous amount of work to be done, a uh, tremendous amount of work to be done as we see and hear stories of a polarization that's very similar to the one that happened in 1968 and 69. It's similar, but uh, but different. I mean, there'd be no argument that things have improved. And I was there say a lot of it because of the Catholic campaign for human development. But I think our presence is just as important now as it's ever been. Amen. All right. So I think the website is povertyusa.org where they can learn more. You can learn more and you can see where some of the organizations that we support around the country are. And I would say that if you go to Poverty USA and see some of those organizations that you consider visiting and working with and interact with those organizations, they can certainly use our volunteers. They can certainly use your, your hand and your heart and your prayers. Mm -hmm. So uh, look at some of the organizations around the country, see where you might uh, best fit in and, and, and join this tremendous work. Amen. Jesus said so after all, right? <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> oh, thank you, Ralph. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced and edited by Colin Wamscans. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good. <laughs>